Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today needs no introduction. Toby Carlisle is a founder of the Acquirers Multiple and the Acquirers Funds. He manages two ETFs, a larger cap deep value ETF with the ticker ZIG and a smaller cap one with the ticker DEEP. He is the author of several books on value investing and is the co-host of the popular podcast, Value After Hours. You may also know him by his Twitter handle, Greenback. In this conversation, which started at a lunch table and continued in the podcast studio, we covered how he blends qualitative and quantitative research to construct his portfolios, the methodologies he uses to inform position sizing, rebalancing, and concentration, why he requires the companies he owns to meet certain free cash flow and balance sheet criteria, the rationale for holding a diverse range of market cap stocks within his ZIG ETF, and the difference between looking to be a contrarian and the willingness to be a contrarian. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with the one and only Toby Carlisle. So for anyone who hasn't been exposed to your work and your strategies, and assuming the world could be neatly divided up between fundamental and quant investors, where do you place yourself within that? Yeah, I think that they're essentially, I don't think you you necessarily have to divide them into two. I always regard myself as a fundamental investor and a quantitative investor, because I think that quant, your, quant could be anything from looking at price action, like a momentum, or even looking for technical analysis type stuff. And I don't do anything like that. I'm purely fundamental. So we use, you know, financial statement data to come up with a valuation for the company and then compare that to the price. We're doing that across all of the securities in the universe, trying to find the ones at the biggest discount that, you know, have the best prospects in the way that we think about those things and then um, take a diversified portfolio position them. So that might be another, I know that we're going to get to this in a little bit, but 
you know, I think about portfolio construction and diversification a lot. I tr- I tend to be, you know, it, I, I, I always say I'm not that concentrated, but then it it depends. I'm probably quite concentrated for for a quant, but sure. not. I don't think for a fundamental investor. I'm like 30 positions in in Zig, a hundred in deep, but. I'll, I'll, we can talk about that a little bit too, but that I, I regard myself as a fundamental investor. When I when I say I'm a quant, I'm not a PhD from Booth um, in computer science or quantitative methods. Or that I'm not. I'm a I'm a lawyer by training. I have some like university level quantitative methods and statistical analysis and those sort of things, but um, not by training. The way that I think about it is. We can look at the financial statements and we can derive uh, a valuation and then there's a narrative that goes on top of that that tells us what's going to happen in the future. And to my mind, the narrative, two completely reasonable people can look at the same financial statements and have 180 degree divergent views on the future for that company. And that's often why these things are trading cheaply. And my argument is I don't trust myself on the narrative front enough Mm. That I would rather just lean on what the financial statements say. I know historically, statistically, that the likelihood of being right or wrong is about fifty percent. It's about a coin flip in the positions that in backtest and in and in the live trading of the funds. So I know that it's that the narrative, for, to my mind, the narrative is like a, a is a fifty fifty coin flip. Um, but the ones that work tend to work a little bit more because. We're getting a pretty good risk reward. They're at a big discount, and the ones that don't work, they're already trading pretty cheaply. There's at least some sort of quantitative valuation backing. So that's when I say a quant. I mean, I try to ignore the story and focus more on the financial statements. And then I'm fundamental in the sense that the valuation is derived from the financial statements. So that's a how's that for not answering the question? No, it's a good. It's, I like that. So, so said another way, like I don't know. I guess like I, I, I think like you have to hit a to be successful in investing. You probably have to have a 60, 60 to seventy percent hit rate. But in your your way, in, in your strategy, it's, it can be fifty fifty. But the losers don't detract that much, and then you get such such leverage on the on the winners because of the cheap valuation. That's how the that's how like the a good performance algorithm would work. It's always magnitude and frequency. Everybody has questions of magnitude and frequency, and probably because my ho- you know the way that I think about a holding period is a rebalance state to a rebalance state. Every time I'm buying something, I'm thinking potentially we hold this until something cheaper comes along, or until the thesis breaks down and we need to sell and move on to the next thing. So I'm thinking that that process. I know that fundamental data. Uh, is predictive out to about five years. Beyond five years, it's sort of noise. I can't find any single fundamental ratio, like looking at credit or valuation or quality or anything, mode, whatever you, however you want to measure it, that works beyond five years. Everything outside of that is noise. And then it's sort of asymptotic. Like the, mo- the, the biggest move is in the first year. There's a smaller move in the second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, and then there's no excess returns beyond the fifth year. So, what I'm thinking of is potentially a lot of the positions will be in the fund for a long time. It's just that I think about a position working or not over the next three months. And that's basically a very noisy period anyway. So, 50 50 is about right. And then, you know, as I say, it's magnitude and frequency. So, 
You just need the ones that win to win bigger. You could have one in 100 winners, provided that that one, one in 100 winner pays off enough. Like that's a frightening thought for me to, yep. to build a portfolio that way. But you could do that if, as long as the winner pays off enough to, to and that's sort of a more of a VC type model where they know they'll have one in 10 that work or something like that. But the 10, the payoff is so huge that it makes sense. Now, my payoff's not a VC payoff. It's much, much smaller than that, but it's that's the idea, like magnitude and frequency. And it, it just falls out that way. It's about 50-50, but the winners are bigger than the, and the losers are smaller and it tends to work. And if, if you think about weighting in a portfolio like Zig, which you've said has about 30 securities, are you weighting them based on the discount or is there any other, is there a fundamental overlay to position sizing? How, how have you thought about that? I've done so much work on weighting. I wrote a book called Concentrated Investing, which was sort of the the end of the research journey. I, I write the books based on some research that I'm doing at the time to try to figure something out. And so the concept, the first book was sort of quantitative value, what metrics in industry or academic research have led to fundamental metrics have led to performance. We call it quantitative value. It could have been quantitative, fundamental, something like that. Looking at creditworthiness, distress risk, bankruptcy risk, fraud risk, earnings manipulation, quality of the business, margins, and so on and so on, evaluations. Deep value was just sort of more of a focus on what happens in things that are deeply undervalued. Why do they turn around? And there's a big component of mean reversion in that. And then there's concentrated investing was the third one, which was basically thinking about portfolio construction, looking at very successful investors over value guys over 25 years who've got a 25-year track record and seeing how they perform. And then looking at the research, there's a lot of efficient markets research there. And there's also some stuff like dating back to Graham and then looking at concentrated investors who size up. So, you know, Buffett's sizing positions way up. He'll put 40% of his portfolio into one name if he thinks that the risk reward is there. And he was doing that. He's doing that pretty late as well. I don't think he does quite to that extent anymore, although Apple, like as a portion of his equity portfolio, was was that kind of scale. So what I found, um, it's funny, the efficient market guys say that, you know, what they're looking at is how do you replicate a market portfolio with as few securities as possible? This was back when it was much, much harder to create a market portfolio. Now we can just, with a computer, you can do it pretty easily. But And with the trading and the cost of trading, it's so cheap. You could literally construct a market portfolio and it doesn't matter. But back in the day, they had to try to get there with as few securities as possible. And it falls out that you get there with about 20 names. I think you get 90% of the market portfolio with 20 names and you get 95% with 30 names. And then to get the last 5%, it just it's a long, long tail of, uh, until, you, until you hold the market portfolio. So it, the question is really, how do you deviate from the market portfolio? Because you know we're value guys, we're trying to charge a higher fee, trying to generate some outperformance, some risk-adjusted outperformance. And so you have to justify your existence and you can't hug the market portfolio. Otherwise, you, go, you can't randomly select securities that'll give you, if you randomly select securities, you're going to get a market return at about 20 to 30 names. So the market, the market, efficient market guys fall out at about 20 to 30 names. Then you look at Graham, he says 30 names. I did some testing and you find this, um, you find this relationship where you have, the more concentrated you get, the better your returns are, but it becomes much more volatile. 
and you get to the point where you're holding, you hold the best name in the entire book. And then you're beholden to the fortunes of that name, which is there's so much idiosyncratic risk in there. You can't do it really. So three names, there's lots of people like Munger would say three names. Buffett might say three names. Similarly, you're getting, you can get a lot of alpha. Like if you're, you go through all of the things that you'd like to see in a stock, you can screen down your universe to those names, run that forward, rebalancing on some sort of regular basis. What you find is any given portfolio uh, is just an incredibly volatile prospect. But over the full, you know, assuming that you'd be allowed to run that portfolio for the full period, yeah. You and keep your clients, right. And well, that's, you wouldn't be able to do it basically because the drawdowns are so huge. You just, your drawdowns get bigger and bigger as your por- portfolio gets more and more concentrated. So it turns out, it just sort of falls out that somewhere around 30 actually gives you the best balance of sort of, you know, volatility to the extent that anybody cares about volatility. I know value guys, we don't care about volatility, but I, th- I think about it in terms of really much more in terms of drawdown. If you get you get these periodic massive drawdowns, 2000, like a 50% drawdown, 2009, 50% drawdown, you go back 1929, it's so like an 80% drawdown, 80% plus, and there are lots of other drawdowns in between. And the more concentrated you are, the more you're sort of subject to something going wrong in any individual name or just being in a sector that draws down, whatever happens. At 30 names, you're getting as close to sort of optimal return profile as you can with a volatility that's below or equal to the market. And so it gives you that nice sort of looking risk-adjusted return. The drawdowns are about market-level drawdowns. I don't think there's like there's this... There's this, me- not memes, probably not the right word, but this myth, I guess, that value doesn't draw down as much as the market, which is clearly not true. If you look at any of the big drawdowns, it's always, whatever, however you're constructing it, you draw down along with the market. So there's no there's no avoiding it. What you can sort of hope for is that you don't draw, draw down more. You're not sort of too focused in something that gets really whacked through some particular drawdown. So I found that it fell out at about 30 names. And when I run deep, deep is my smaller micro portfolio. It's got a hundred names in it. I have a slightly different uh, theory when it comes to deep. In those small names, there is a lot of idiosyncratic risk. There's an enormous amount of idiosyncratic risk. The balance sheets just aren't as good. The managers tend to be not as good. The prospects for the business just aren't. There's not as much upside. And I think really in the Russell 2000 and below, if you look at those names, you can really easily screen out a very large number of them because they're negative cash flow for the most part. They've just never really done anything. They're not treating their shareholders like partners. The prospects for the business on the upside aren't as good. And so you can construct a portfolio though that if you eliminate like 95% of the stuff, you're left with a pretty good portfolio of little businesses that can do fairly well over time. And so I'm really relying on the performance of the portfolio there. So there's a hundred names in deep. It's constructed quantitatively like Zig is, but it's um, it's just a broader spectrum because I think that uh, there's just so much more idiosyncratic risk in those names that you can have a handful that look quite healthy going in and deteriorate very quickly. And so I'd just rather protect myself by by having more of a spread in that in that area 
And is that a hundred one percent positions in deep and thirty three right. thirty positions at three three point three percent in in uh, in Zig? How how does the weighting and how does valuation you know impact that that weighting side? So it becomes very hard at once you once you're down. So thirty positions out. So Zig is drawn from basically the Russell one thousand universe. It's not that universe, but you can think of it as that universe. And deep is drawn from below that. So I think that once you once you're in the thirty out of a thousand names, you're sort of in. 0.3%. It's very hard to say that from 30 to 1, 1 is going to massively outperform 30. And it's there's a, there's a huge amount of noise, particularly on a quarterly rebalance basis. So I just think it's easier to equally weight in there, which I, I acknowledge gets you some unusual things where unusual outcomes where I have a very big company that's equally weighted to a very to a smaller company in that mm-hmm. universe. But it, I think it's I think it, it sort of works um just because the the prospects for each might be comparable, even though there's such different sizes, different industries. It's just too hard to tell at that kind of level of concentration. And I noticed that, and and I think that the Zig portfolio is particularly eclectic. When I look, when I was looking at it, you had Qualcomm, which is like a hundred twenty billion dollar business, uh, and then Matson, which is a three billion dollar market cap company. Do you, is there any cognitive dissonance associated with holding companies that are that you know it, it that have that biggest size? discrepancy or is it really just about the combination of valuation and prospects i like a little bit of diversification of market capitalization business um capital structure industry you know to the extent that i can get it in there not that i'm trying to create that but i like that the that is sort of a, a that is what falls out it's very strange, you know. I have, a, I know that there are other ETFs. There are other ETFs that are comparable to mine that I kind of track against my own. And there are some that they tend to they tend to buy slightly bigger companies. Some that tend to buy slightly smaller companies. And I can often tell, like it's some days in the market, and some weeks, and some months, and some quarters. The thing that is driving it is size, and it's a strange kind of thing where the bigger. Just, just by you know, and I've got two. I've got a bigger, bigger, a list of bigger names and a list of smaller names. And the, sometimes it's just it's purely a size, as far as I can see. It's a size thing that's driving. I don't know why that is. I don't know why that happens. But I think that there's a lot of um, in this sort of complex adaptive systems, which the market is, and the portfolios, these smaller sort of subsets of that. You can often find these these strange behaviors, and I think that the more diversified you can be within the, the within the thesis that you're trying to execute, the better the returns are, the more sort of protected that the portfolio is. And you find some, you know, that's the, the theory of diversification across, you know, uh, across uh, styles, for example. Sometimes, you know, we've, we've gone through a period of time where it was very growthy. The higher the growth rate of the revenues in the business sort of the better the business did and the lower the growth rate of the revenues the worse the businesses did even though really what we're interested in is the bottom line or the amount of free cash flow that's flowing out and sometimes it's the other way around sometimes or most of the time it's it tends to go the more free cash flow they generate the better they do it's just hard to tell from any period to to the to the next so I, i like a little bit of diversification of style and theory and industry size as much as I can get into the portfolios. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven, 
single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And you mentioned the importance of free cash flow. Um, and I know that risk management's a big focus of yours and you typically require your companies to generate cash and not to be overlevered. I mean, I guess you could go the other way and say that companies that do, don't pass those tests could be even more undervalued. Why do you employ those balance sheet and cash flow filters? In the small cap world, the small cap world is sort of the bit, it's it's most obvious in the small cap world. If you have, if you'd require free cash flow out of your businesses in the small cap world, you'll just find that they tend to generate better returns over time. Um, it's, it's a sort of tiny little incremental margin on each rebalance, but it's material over enough time. It does, send, does tend to com- compound. Um, free cash flow, it's, it's a funny thing is whenever you say, and this is something I've learned from tracking different factors and different styles, like I, I prefer what I call the acquirer's multiple, um, which is EVE, but EV operating income, my definition of enterprise value, my definition of operating income basically combined together because that's the way I think about a business. I want to buy operating income as cheaply as I possibly can and ideally where it's hidden by some big chunk of cash on the balance sheet where you can't really see how well this thing's earning and how cheap it really is because it's sort of disguised a little bit on a market capitalization basis. But there, that that strategy was the best one to when I wrote the book in 2014 and it's had a rough run since 2014 and I think it might have been overtaken by some other price to cash flow or something like that. But I think what happens is every, whatever, however you think about constructing, whatever style metric you favor, so value guys wouldn't say, they wouldn't explicitly say, I'm, I'm leaning on this factor. They would just say, oh, I have a preference for, you know, I like companies that generate free cash flow or whatever. And then you'll find that that will go through periods of being undervalued and periods of being overvalued. And you might not know that as a sort of bottom-up fundamental investor, whereas I'm a little bit more aware of it because I look at the factors and I, I track the factors a little bit. So I I, I do acknowledge that in, in the deep value world, it is a little bit of an inside-out world where sometimes that's exactly what happens. You want You don't want the one that pays the dividend. You want the one that doesn't pay a dividend because mm. it gets much cheaper. You don't want the one that's profitable. You want the one that's unprofitable because for that reason, it gets so much cheaper. But I think what I'm trying to do is build a portfolio of little businesses that generate pretty good free cash flows that then management sensibly redeploys into the business or uses to buy back stock or pay down debt, whatever the case may be. And I just want that portfolio to be what I think is the best exposure to sort of operating income. So free cash flow is, I think a free cash flow is sort of, it's very, it's the derivative of the derivative. It's all the way down at the very end. And it's it's very volatile from, for most businesses, it's pretty volatile from quarter to quarter, year to year, you know, sure. cycle to cycle. Because it's not, you know, it's not, cash flow is much more reliable. Revenues is much more, revenues, top lines, the most reliable, most predictable. And there are other decisions that the management teams make as they go down that list until you get to free cash flow. And that, are they investing for growth? Where's that growth investment going in? Is it is it coming out of free cash flow? Is it they're doing it somewhere a little bit further up the the income statement, or they're doing it somewhere else where it makes it hard to compare on a like for like basis? So I like free cash flow as a catch all at the very end. Just to, I just like to see that there is some there and they're, they're deploying it in a sensible way. But I prefer operating income, which is much more 
much further up the income statement. And I think it's a more reliable barometer of what the business is doing. But even that metric is still subject to decisions that the management makes below revenues and cogs and so on. So it's imperfect. But I, I, it's just, I, I think about them as sort of what probably the way a private equity investor would think about investing in these little industrial type businesses. And, um, and then I like to see some free cash flow at the end. So at least there, because I think some, sometimes free cash flow is like, that's a, how disciplined is the management team? How well do they convert operating income into free cash flow? And then what do they do with it? And if you, if you find they're doing those things, particularly in a small cap world, then the, the prospects for those businesses are pretty good. And you also mentioned capital allocation in, in that response. And so I'm interested, I'm trying to get a sense of how you balance the qualitative and the quantitative, like how, how deep are you going into capital allocation and strategy and, you know, things like culture when you're thinking about the companies you're, uh, you know, that, that show up on this quantitative screen that would allow them, you know, to get into the portfolios. As much as I possibly can, I do quantitatively. Um, not everything can be done quantitatively, but as much as I possibly can, I do quantitatively for the reason that I can test it and I know that it'll be employed on a consistent basis from quarter to quarter. And I know that I can run the model and you know, we get a March 2020 or whatever happens again in the future. I'm subject to, I'm as, I get as nervous as everybody else. I get as sweaty as everybody else does when those things happen. And I like having a process that I can go through just execute this process so you can function when you've got the adrenaline pumping, make this make pretty good decisions that replicable replicable decisions. Having said that, financial statements are, there's a little bit of art in financial statements as well. Two companies in the exact same industry could be treating their financial statements in different ways. There's a lot of discretion in the way that they recognize various different whatever it might be. And I like to be able to convert what they're doing in the financial statements into an economic reality. And so I just, I do this, I have this step at the end where we go through and we make sure we've caught all of the notes, we've put them all into the financial statements, we've caught all of the little decisions that they've made, to, little adjustments that they've made to try to make it comparable on a like-for-like -like basis. Mostly at that stage, I'm looking for risks of balance sheet liabilities, contingent liabilities, things that would really impact the valuation. You and I would agree that they uh, make a big difference to the valuation, but for whatever reason, it's just not reflected in the financial statements. I haven't eliminated a lot of names on that basis, but you know, I use it. I, I, I look in financials, I look in insurance, and those are two um, industries that particularly subject to decisions that the managers make in the way they construct those financial statements. So that's, that's how I'm using it. It's not really beyond that, looking at strategy and other things like that i i think that um you know you've you've always got this tension between being able to make a decision on the information that you have and sort of chasing everything down to the nth degree i think that if you get the big muscle movements right you, you'll largely be okay but i do acknowledge that there are going to be lots of errors like i know that my error rate's about 50 percent and that we're going to make mistakes but it's not a tontine until death. It's just to the next rebalance state, and they can be corrected if the you know there there are lots of mistakes. Lots of times something goes in, but I, I don't mind it because the market the market already agrees that there's a problem with this company. There's that's mm. why we're getting the discount. Everybody agrees that there's a problem, and so I'm, what what I'm really looking for is 
Where is the market's perception of this thing wrong? It's cheap. And cheapness just implies one of two things. Either the market has made a mistake, that's, and that seems unlikely, hmm. that, that many, many smart people would, would pass over something and let it, uh, you know, let it lie there, just walk past that $10 bill lying on the ground. Or there's an implication that, that says that earnings are going to go down, cash flow is going to fall, and uh, in that instance, the market will be right. I'm just hoping that when the market is wrong, so we we've both been doing it for long enough that the efficient. There's no way that I think it would be hard, having invested through the last five years, to say that the hard style efficient market theory is the correct one. Right? You might get to like the, the loosest version of the of the efficient market theory. Maybe I do think the markets are mostly efficient. I think it's and they're probably getting more efficient all the time. Having said that. There are lots of times where I see management teams overreact, investors overreact, politicians overreact, everybody overreacts. People get bored. I mean, Dillard's is a great example of just getting bored. Like that's a, that's a stock that I own three times over the same holding period that Weschler held it. You know, you know that Weschler's held it for seven years. It's done nothing for seven years. In the last year, it's ten bagged, giving him a thirty-five percent CAGR over the full holding <laughs> period. I don't have his patience or his confidence that I was right. So I bought and sold it. But just because I bought and sold it because there were other better opportunities and then it would be there again and I bought it again. Other better opportunities. And I did it three times and I didn't hold it for the 10, 10 pack run. So I got it completely wrong. But I, that's the, that's the, you know, that's, that's, that's what can happen. That's just the, the nature of it that you're not necessarily wrong because the stock doesn't do anything. People do get bored with these things and my my model gets bored with them too, evidently, because it's sold out at the wrong time. But it was clearly undervalued. It was clearly too cheap. It was just, could you foresee that during COVID, they'd, all of this confluence of factors would come together to, to help them out? Probably not, but you know that's what happens. That's what the business is. And when you combine quantitative analysis with some, you know, qualitative assessments of what's going on, it introduces multiple potential sell signals. So maybe you can talk about your sell discipline and, you know, whether you, it sounds like you probably weigh the quantitative methodology more, but maybe talk a little bit about the things that, you know, maybe make you a little different in terms of why you sell things. Well, any quant would say that the output of the quantitative model is the ceiling to the performance, not the floor. You're not going to take the output and add to it and do better than the model. That's that's um, that's pretty clear. My answer to that is I'm not necessarily trying to generate the best performance that I possibly could. What I'm trying to do is eliminate as much risk as I possibly can from the portfolio. And I kind of think that you can get to this situation, like you can imagine this theoretical situation where you have this risk-free portfolio that generates some return. That's risk-free return, and then, you know, that's that's sort of the ideal scenario. That's that pure arbitrage. Now, I'm, my portfolios don't do that. It's nothing like that at all. I'm not trying to suggest that they do. I'm just saying that's the theoretical ideal that I'd love to get to. So I'm happy to go through and pick out anything where I think the business model is. The quant model is not fully appreciating what the business model will do and has done in the past through periods of economic weakness, and so you know, there are various examples of that. I don't really want to mention them, but there are lots of examples where there are businesses that 
they do well through good times and then they do really badly through bad times and sometimes they don't survive through bad times. And so I just don't want to be in those kind of names. So I use the qualitative methods to eliminate those um, because I haven't found a way to sort of combine that into the model. It, just because recessions are so, you know, when was the last real recession that we saw aside from March 2020? When was the last one that we saw? It's probably 2007, 8, 9. And, you know, that's a no, none of my none of my models are looking back that far to see what's happening through seven eight nine. You know, you could go back and look at all the banks and how they performed through seven eight nine, and you'd see some of them did quite well. Some of them actually didn't go backwards much at all through that period of time, or 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 at all, and some of them did very badly. And so, I just want to make sure that I'm in stuff that will be robust and survive. And if that costs me a little bit of performance, then I'm okay with that because I think that I've reduced the risk more than I've kill the performance by doing that that might be cope i might i might be completely lying to myself but it's that's the objective i'm trying to minimize risk rather than sort of maximize return and you're in a vehicle which is or you use vehicles which are etfs which you know turnover doesn't really mean as much as it would in a mutual fund but i'm interested in how you think about turnover just philosophically do you like if if in one quarter, you own 30 stocks and the next quarter, you own 30 different stocks. Would that be okay with you? Or do you want some level of continuity because patience, I don't know if that, I don't know where, where, where patience fits into the model, but talk to me a little bit about how, you know, how much turnover would you think would be ideal or optimal? You know, it's a really great question because I've only recently discovered this. So this is only something that I've become aware of in the last few years, but if you reconstitute the S&P 500 and then, or just, you know, take what the, the current holdings of the S&P 500 and the weightings of that S&P 500, and then you just don't rebalance it. That portfolio tends to outperform the S&P 500. And that's true over most portfolios. And I've now done this exercise where I just instruct the model not to sell. Like it's not, it doesn't really work in a, because th- there's not, it's assuming that you have this new flow, which you don't really have, that like the money's coming from nowhere to to reconstitute each portfolio but i just do it annually and then i just don't sell for the full data set just to see what happens just for just for my own interest and i've done it a few times now with different like i've done it with just a naive selection of cash flow cash flowing companies and a few different ideas like using acquirers multiple and a few other things just to see if i'm sort of if i'm getting lucky with the names that i'm picking or if it's if it's a real phenomenon and you find this very strange thing that happens by doing that. You get to the end of the period. So stuff that you might buy 20 something years ago, that portfolio becomes very binary. You get zeros. Well, and you know, total donuts, lots of total donuts, but you also get these massive winners. And that I've looked at them, you know, I try to look at them not knowing what happened in the future. And for many of the the names are so obscure for many of them that it's I don't know what actually did happen to them. So it's easy for me to kind of pretend that I didn't know because I didn't know. And I look at these things and I'd say, I'd say to friends of mine, have you ever heard of these companies? Because this thing has been like a 50X over the last 20 years for no reason that I can see. It's so, like I said earlier, beyond five years, the fundamentals don't matter anymore. It's some other, something else has gone into that portfolio, but you wind up at the end of that heavily concentrated into a handful of names. Like you, when I say heavily concentrated, the concentration tends to be in these portfolios. Like 15% is your biggest name, eight to 15% might be your biggest name, and then so on. And then you have 
you might have 40 or 50 names because things are repurchased year after year after year. You might have 50 names in total and you've got a lot of concentration of the names that have worked. And the ones that have worked are the ones that everybody knows are really good companies to have owned that you bought 20 years ago. It, this is in my theoretical back-tested model. I didn't actually buy this. And it looks like you're really like you a Kelly betting, sensible, long-term value investor who's who's like done this on purpose when you've really just got lucky and never sold anything with a purely quantitative approach at the start. So I've been like joking that I wanted to start this portfolio called like ghost ship or something like that, where the rules are super simple. You just buy these things and then never sell them and you buy them just, you know, this is the funny thing too. Like I've, I've tested what clearly valuation doesn't matter if you're going to hold forever, right? What you want is the best companies. You want the qualitative, sure. qualitative winners and it doesn't work as well. Value is the only thing that is predictive up to five years. And beyond that, it's not predictive at all. Inside the five years, you tend to overpay for some of these names. And the quality is just unpredictable. These things, the things that really work are things that are cheap and not very good. And they get really good and then they get expensive. And that's kind of what happens. So it's it's kind of the luck of the draw. You can't predict which ones will work. So I, I call it the ghost ship portfolio. I'd love to see it run. One of the other interesting things about it is that after about five years, a third of the capital of the portfolio has been returned. Because if you're buying, if you think about it, if you're buying cheap on a price to cash flow basis, cash flow yields might be between 10 and 15% for a lot of these names. So if you hold, if you're paying, you know, 15% of cash flow, after five years, you've seen something like the company's returned something like with no growth, it's returned like 75, it's earned 75% cash in what you've invested. And it's given you back about half of that and reinvested the other half. That's pretty typical, about half reinvested, half returned. So you get a lot of cash coming back that you could keep on redeploying in this hold forever portfolio. And uh, you've, you've also got these names that are working really well. So but I, I can see that it should work. Having said that, it's hard to hold on to some of these names. And like you get these funny weightings in the portfolio where you'd have to justify it. You've got 15% in this thing now. It looks expensive. It's done really well. Surely now's the time to trim it. Like you, you think you, you get those thoughts 20 something years into the portfolio and you'd have no answer. You just have to have to watch these things go to the moon and return to zero again. It, it, it's going to happen through through the process and you're sort of relying on the, uh, the performance of the portfolio as a whole to sort of drag you through. I don't do that in the, in the portfolios. I rebalance to equal weight at each rebalance period, and I tend to turn over it. It's, it's about a quarter of the portfolio every time it's rebalanced, although some things tend to go in and come out a few times because there's often a, there's just some noise around the edges. I don't know if that's ideal or not. All that it is, the, the reason for doing it, though, is that uh, if you construct portfolios on an annual basis, say, you're very... You're beholden to this sort of timing luck where if you rebalanced in March 2009, if you've got a rebalance date in March 2009, your returns look spectacularly good because you've managed to rebalance right on the right time. If you rebalanced in September of that year, your returns are, I think they're like less than half. The, the, the rebalance date makes such a huge difference and it's not, it's exactly the same strategy. It's just rebalanced on a different day. So maybe the ideal situation is to, 
buy and hold for two years. Some people do that, but it introduces increasing complexity into the portfolio. So you, you rebalance quarterly, but you hold for two years. So you've got eight rebalance states over that two-year period. So rebalancing 12.5% of the portfolio. At the moment, I don't need to do that because my funds are so small. I can just rebalance the entire portfolio on a quarterly basis. I found that getting the timing luck, eliminating the timing luck is more important than catching the the, the winners. And this is probably what happens for many of these things. They transition from value into quality or they transition from value into momentum. And that's sort of what generates the returns. You'd never, like a value go would never hold some of these names to, at, at some point. They become too expensive that they're just not, you just, you, you couldn't find any justification for continuing to hold them. But that doesn't mean that the returns end. Like they often many things that are very, very good trade very expensively and they can do it for a very long period of time, provided that they sustain that higher quality. They'll trade at a big premium to the market for a decade or more. And you're silly if you've truncated that at the start, even though that's probably what value guys tend to do and I would definitely do in the portfolios. So that's my, it's imperfect. There's a lot of trade-offs that are made, but I'm trying I'm trying to combat one thing by doing one thing and that, that does create some error on the other side. And you mentioned your current fund size relative to capacity. I'm interested in how you've thought about, I don't know, let's say you woke up and and, and the funds were much larger over time because you've proven that that these are successful strategies. You know, and and one of the issues with an ETF is you can't close it. So how have you thought about the the capacity question? The uh it's a great problem to have. And uh, I haven't really tried to work too hard at it because I, I think that the ceiling is sort of it's probably 50 times bigger than I am right now so I'm, I think Zig's about 40 something million I don't think it's really an issue until I get to 2 billion which would be roughly the smallest potential name that would go into the book so I'd be one for one with the smallest name with a three percent waiting into a two billion dollar company I don't want to trade that on a quarterly basis so I might have to, at that point, I would use one of those other strategies where I just stagger the rebalance over a period of years. So it would it would be able to absorb a lot more capital, but it do, at some point it does hit that upper limit. Um, I don't know. Hopefully by that time I'm so rich and famous, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Always the best problem, be problem to have, right? <laughs> but what about on the deep side? I mean, deep deep seems to me to be the one that that like you know, 101% positions, right? That like, there's a reason why it's hard to scale micro cap strategies in general and small cap strategies in general. What, how have you thought about it on that side? Well, deep holds a hundred positions. So that does, that pushes that problem out further than it would otherwise be more concentrated than that. The thing is, that's probably, I, I think that there's, that is a much greater risk for deep than it is for Zig because deep is so small. And when, you know, smalls have had such a bad run over the last 10 or 15 years that, it hasn't been a problem, but that can easily turn around. And there's a lot of money that will flood into that sector. And you know, with any luck, it floods into those funds. So that becomes a problem much more quickly. There are strategies that you can use to stagger the rebalancing, stagger the amount of the portfolio that's rebought and sold. That, that's basically what happens. You have to increase the number of rebalance states, increase the or and decrease the portion of the portfolio that's rebalanced at any given point in time. So you do tend to hold for longer. I don't know that the returns necessarily go down at that point, but there is some limit at which that happens. I don't know where it is, but it's. I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that if I get to that problem, if I have that problem that I've been doing it for so long, I have some good 
pithy solution for it at the time. But I this this I know that there are people who are bigger, much much bigger than me, dealing with those problems, and I know what they do to to combat them. So, I think if I get to that point, I'll be doing a lot of those things. And then beyond that point, you're sort of in uncharted territory. Likely by that stage, it's just getting ready to fall apart. So I won't worry about it too much. And in that response, you hinted at mean reversion. And I saw a recent post from you where you showed a chart from 2011 that highlighted sm that small caps were trading at the largest premium to large caps in the generation at that right. point. And now we're at the complete opposite end of that spectrum where large caps are trading at a huge premium to small ones. Um, is that something like you believe and hope will be mean reverting? And, you know, obviously smalls have done pretty poorly. And so uh, what, how have you, how do you conceptualize that big change from 2011 to 2023, where it's basically flipped? I was, I, you know, I was investing in 2011. Um, we probably met each other in 2011. I'm pretty sure at least by that's around that sort of time, maybe sure. before then. And I was probably more small cap value then. I'm, I'm small cap value now. So my, you know, Zig, which is supposed to be mid and large, I just it's been mid the entire time that I've run it publicly since 2019. And I just looked on Morningstar a week ago and I see that it's been now the the centroid of its um its of its little sort of portfolio spread is now sitting in small. So I don't know what's happened to the market over the last quarter or so, but the even mid caps are now small caps and uh, my small caps are uh, off the bottom of that scale completely. Um I, th I sort of, I believe and I hope that that is in fact what happens, that we do run from the worst small cap performance in a generation to the best small cap performance in a generation. I think that's entirely possible that, that happens. I didn't, I wasn't aware in 2011 that small caps were that overvalued. It's sort of, you know, you, you and I have discussed before that value itself is an evergreen strategy. Buying small caps, like definitionally, you can buy undervalued small caps in an overvalued small cap market you can certainly find them around you know they exist but they just don't do well for whatever reason didn't perform very well i do think that mean reversion is a is a is an underappreciated aspect of the performance of markets because it's not visible in the financial statements it's not visible in the data you're looking at a trend that goes in one direction in earnings and share price and then at some point that trend turns around and goes in the other direction. It makes no sense. Like, why does that happen? Why doesn't the trend can continue to go in one direction? I don't know what the answer to that is, uh, even though I've thought about it for a long time. Uh, but I'm I, I'm certain that mean reversion is a phenomenon that exists in the market. I don't, I don't know if it's a force, but it's a phenomenon. It's a thing that happens. You see these businesses do very well. For long periods of time and maybe competition comes in and they they do much worse maybe it works in the other direction as well businesses do poorly for a long period of time other businesses exit the industry it becomes starved for capital that certainly happens i've seen that happen in lots of places and then when the uh, market returns for whatever reason it needs that commodity or whatever the case may be the beneficiaries are the ones that are able to survive through that long period of drought and they do very well for a period of time, and then all of the competition rushes back in, and you see it reverse, and it goes the other way. So when I look at small caps, I think that it seems likely to me. They look to me like they're they're pretty healthy at the moment. They look to me like they're unusually cheap. If you look at you know you can look at Morningstar, Morningstar's breakdown of Zig's portfolio, and you can see that the growth rates in there are astronomical. 
the prices that you're paying for the earnings and the cash flow are incredibly cheap. And I think that when those two things get together, eventually the market kinds of figures it out. Like, I don't think you need mean reversion necessarily in the multiples because I think that those stocks are now so cheap that you're going to get a pretty good yield out of them. Plus, the money that's reinvested is reinvested at pretty high rates. And so the the businesses themselves should grow pretty healthily. If there's no multiple expansion there, you still get pretty good returns out of those businesses. Likely what happens is that when those two things come together, you will get multiple expansion. That'll probably be the thing that inspires another run to, to small cap value. I said the same thing late 2020 because I think that the same setup existed in late 2020 and, the, and it did go on to have this short-term run. It lasted about six months and then it's sort of topped out around April 2021 and it's run backwards since then all the way to today. I still th- I, I see the same scenario now. I, I think it could turn around and go for a run. I don't necessarily know if that's the the end of the pain in small cap or it's just another short-term run. I have no idea what influences it. I, I honestly don't know, but I think I think looking at looking at the names and looking at the portfolio and the the characteristics of the portfolio, I think it's in a very good position, and I think they should generate pretty good returns, whatever happens to the multiples in them. Yeah, I think I'd postulate that one thing to add to what you said is that at, at some point, when something does so well for twelve or ten or twelve years, valuations get to the point where you've right. basically pulled forward a bunch of returns. And when when seven stocks are driving the market, right, and the the rest, the other, you know, there are two thousand stocks that have been left for dead. Eventually, that starts to mean revert in in terms of just as you said, multiples don't even have to expand. The businesses compound to some degree, and 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 the and the bigger companies can't compound at those previous rates, and multiples contract. Um, it's, that's that would be if it were to work. That would be the mechanism I would see happening. I think the thing that's really confounded a lot of value guys over the last decade is that. Those very those seven names, like you can look in those seven names now, Facebook and Google, Microsoft, like those are spectacular businesses that really it's going to be very hard to compete against them in the in their current niches. So the only way that they get supplanted is if you know we no longer interact with the internet through search, we interact through some other mechanism. We know that we no longer access the internet through a browser, we access it through virtual re- like it's it has to be a complete change complete paradigm shift to accessing that thing to unseat those guys and i guess we've just got i don't know if it's like not enforcing uh antitrust law or if it's just that these businesses have that one-to-one you know much much closer to a one-to-one relationship with their customers whereas historically that wasn't possible you know to build to grow you know that exponential growth at some point that that last little bit of growth that you require to get to maintain those massive rates of growth means that you've got to build gigantic factories or whatever the case may be. And so they just became, the growth really became an anchor to their to their uh, future growth. And that maybe that's not the case with, with these sort of distributed internet companies. I don't know, but I, I, I still look at them and I think, you know, this, you could make an argument for owning a lot of those names. They're not egregiously expensive. They're, ex- they're rich, but they're not, you know, you have to be right on the valuations, but you, or you have to be right on the underlying business. You don't have to be paying up for the valuation, but they're not, it's not like previous bubble peaks where you look at the name and you think there's just no way it's 
it's you know like you look at Cisco or some of those names in two thousand at the peak. They were and they were actually making physical routers and things like that. Like that was going to be hard to feed the next exponential wave of growth into an already saturated market. Whereas for Google and for Microsoft and for Facebook, I don't know. I don't. I don't know where the roof of their their growth is. So it's it's tough. I mean, when you look at those seven names, and then you go and look at the the small cap portfolios. Like I understand why the the small cap portfolios, the redheaded stepchildren of those, you know, magnificent seven golden haired, you know, beauties at the at the top there. But I still hope and think that it's going to turn around because the, if you look at the, the collective portfolio, I think the collective portfolio is be, is better than that than those seven names. But time will tell. Um, and just going off that theme of heated industries and stocks, uh, when I look at the Zig portfolio, I see a lot of coal and energy. Uh, I think in, as of July thirty first, those were the that energy was the largest sector in the portfolio. So I'm interested in in you know how you think about potential secularly negative trends there, especially when it comes to coal. How do you approach that risk, right? Which is ever present and some clearly somewhat you know embedded in the valuation. But you know, when you think about when you think about having those portfolio those things in the portfolio relative to other things you could have that maybe aren't as cheap but aren't don't have the same secular pressures, how how have you weighed that that trade-off? So it's a good question. I think that's, that there's a rebalance since that since that one, and I would say basic materials are about twenty five percent, energy is about twenty percent, but the basic materials contains coal, which is, you know, I I think of that as energy rather than as a basic material. Sure. So your your assessment is still it's the case. It's it's true. So coal's an interesting one. Coal is uh, very unpopular as an industry. Um, you can look at the financials of the two that I hold. Um, HCC Warrior Met Coal and Arch Resources. I think they're the two best in the in that industry, and I think they look at the financials. They're growing free cash flows, doing all of the things that a good business would do. So, if you're agnostic to the industry and you just look at them, you would say the financial statements are pretty good. Beyond that, we're sort of entering the realm of narrative, and I can give you my narrative. But this is not the reason that I'm invested in them. The reason I'm invested in them is because the financial statements look pretty good. The narrative goes something like this. If you look at global energy, electricity generation, it's mostly coal. It's 35% coal. There's nothing bigger than, than coal, 35%. If you look at, um, let's say we go into a green infrastructure build, we're going to need a lot of steel to do that. How do you make steel? You need a lot of met coal. So met coal makes steel, steel makes green infrastructure. If we're going to build a whole lot of green infrastructure, we're going to need a lot of met coal. It's just what's going to happen. And uh, we're not searching for a lot of new coal deposits. We're not developing a lot of new coal deposits. There's very limited supply now. There's going to be more limited supply in the future. To the extent we have demand, there's a finite number of producers for it now. And, you know, there's no great barrier to entry into that other than it's just difficult to get them off the ground. So I would say that there's constrained supply. It looks like there's future demand. There's current demand and it looks like there's some future demand there. I think it's a reasonable bet um, because the financial statements look so healthy and I can make a sort of a narrative on the other side. I, I don't see that there being a whole lot of new coal brought online, although I do think it's interesting to see what happened in Europe when 
in some sense, some of our beliefs are sort of luxury beliefs that we can we can have when the world is in one state, and then if the world goes into a more difficult, dangerous state, some of those get traded away, and you can look at Europe turning on a lot of the old cold-fired power stations when it got too cold and they had their gas cut off by Russia. I mean, it just it's just that the, the world is the world is the, the thing that drives a lot of the trends in these big industries are macro and the cyclicals. That's why value guys stay away from them for the most part because it's hard to see where the macro is really hard because you, commodities are hard because you've got to be a macro investor. Macro is hard because there's a hundred things happening at once that, and who knows which one of them is the most important one. I don't know, but I just feel like it's a reasonable risk-adjusted bet in those names. Energy, the oil and gas companies are the same. It's they've got the same problem that the world would ideally like to transition away from them into greener stuff or into into nuclear. Nuclear would be possible as well. There's some, still some resistance to nuclear. Um, you know, wind and solar are just not as reliable as other forms of of energy they don't work at night for the most part they take up a giant footprint for the for the wind um i think that we we may we may transition over decades into a greener energy uh infrastructure but we're a long way from there yet just looking at the numbers and i think that it'll take us so long to get there that you know my next rebalance that's in a quarter so i can i can hold these things while they're cheap, if they deteriorate and I'm wrong, which is entirely possible, it's a 50-50 coin flip, then the portfolio will sort of evolve away from them as time goes on. So that's sort of how I think about it. It's not, I don't have any, I don't have a, you know, divergent view. I forget the, what's the Michael Price line, but the, uh, what's your? Variant perception. Yes. Thank you. Good, good work. I, I don't have a variant perception. I just have, I just, I tend to be, you know, I describe myself a little bit as a contrarian. I just tend to fade the prevailing narrative a little bit. And to the extent that I can find valuation that allows me to do that, then I'm happy doing that. Knowing full well that I could be completely embarrassed to have egg on my face, could be a total error. And I'll have to sell out of those at a little loss and, and, and take the pain and the shame that goes along with doing that. But I, I think that you get paid enough times where the prevailing narrative is wrong, the valuation is cheap, the upside is so great. And so the example that I would give for that is the home builders. Like last year, maybe a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, I had a lot of the home builders in. And the reasons for the home builders got cheapest. Lumber ran up, lumber got crazy expensive. Lumber yep. was obviously a big part of housing. Housing got, the home builders were beaten up because maybe we're going to a recession, maybe who knows what's happening. And so uh, they were cheap and they, Lumber came back down. This weird thing happened where rates shot up so fast that people who were in an existing house didn't want to, couldn't sell that house and move into a new one. So new houses could offer to buy down mortgage rates. They've had one of the best runs in their life with cheap lumber and good prices for their houses and ability to buy down. We've seen some strange things where new houses are selling for the roughly the same price as old houses, which is unusual. Usually there's a little premium for a new house. Home builders had a really good run over the last 12 months. I didn't foresee that happening. I just thought they looked a little bit too cheap with lumber very, very high. It was easy to see that lumber was probably going to come down. I didn't know that there was going to be the demand on the other side as well. That's kind of what 
often it's it's the confluence of factors that I certainly didn't foresee. I don't think anybody foresaw them, which was why they were cheap. And that's what happens. If everybody knew what was going to happen, they'd be bid up already. So nobody knows what's going to happen and they're cheap. There's a chance that something works out. And that's kind of how I think about it. most of the positions in the fund are like that. I can't for, I can't see the future, but I can see another possibility from the one that's embedded in the stock price. And the stock price is so cheap that if the other possibility emerges, then you're going to get a big, they're going to get a lot of performance out of the stock. Uh, if it doesn't, then it's already cheap and I was wrong. And that's that's what happens half the time. The coin the coin falls that way. So that's 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 sort of the that, that's how I think about it. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. I mean, getting to fading the prevailing wisdom, obviously people think that weight loss drugs are going to transform any number of industries from the airlines because people weigh less to you know consumer packaged goods. I don't know how, I don't know if those the consumer staples companies are starting to creep into your screens, but they're probably getting closer. You know, maybe not quite absolutely cheap enough, but I don't know. That to me, that's the that's just from a complete contrarian perspective. I don't know anything about what the long-term impact of these drugs, but just given the prevailing hype, I would say, you know, consumer packaging goods have been companies have been incredible stocks for a very long time you know that to that to me that's what that's what's starting to be hated it's funny it was it a was it a uh, it is that's a new narrative that it's the semaglutide wegovy whatever it is that's that's doing that but you know there's another argument that what those what a lot of those consumer uh staple type businesses were was they they had valuable real estate in a supermarket which was the only place you could buy them and then they had valuable advertising real estate on television, which was the only place you could see them. And so they dominated the advertising. Then when you went to buy them, that was the only thing that you could get in there because they bought space in the stores. Now we sort of live in a slightly different world, which is like an Instagram, uh, TikTok type world where people can, s- you you get a relationship with one particular personality. That personality has their own brand of toothpaste or whatever the case may be. They've got primal toothpaste or paleo you know socks or whatever the case may be and so you buy that thing because you want to express that view about the world and that's why there's been this uh you know we don't consume all of our media through television anymore we don't do all of our shopping through supermarkets anymore so so maybe that scenario where they were stable and reliable growers maybe that was the artificial environment and we're going back now into a into a, a, an environment that's you know just more open at both ends. Having said that, like brand is very powerful. It's so hard to cut through. It's so hard to get attention. It's so hard to be remembered. If you have a brand that people remember, that's very very valuable in this world. I've noticed that too. I've seen lots of names come into the screen that I was surprised because they've always been such superstar businesses that I've always thought of them as being you pay a premium price and you maybe once a year they get cyclically cheap enough through the year for whatever something happens it's not it's not even anything they're just people just aren't paying attention and the stock drifts down a little bit maybe you can snag a little bit at that time but they do seem to be sort of trading down more permanently so I've seen Colgate and a few other names like that um 
a few of those names have come in. I, I, I think it's I think it's interesting. I don't know how it plays out. I don't I don't know what the end result is, but I have bought them when they got cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that I've had any great winners out of them yet, but yeah, I've, I have noticed that phenomenon, right? and I've, I've noticed the Twitter narrative too about we Gavi and semaglutide. Yeah, it's everything, right? It's like I think somebody said that planes now. Yeah, planes because everybody's going to be lighter. Planes are going to do better. You can you can f- filter down through the nth degree. And you can tra- track it all the way to the very end. It's kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, it's whatever we can do an entire podcast on that, but that's, it's just, it was just an interesting, you know, kind of thought given, given you're, you know, kind of just trying to fade the narratives out there. And I think obviously there's a, there's a lot of hype surrounding how that's going to change our society. I'm not necessarily Hopefully. trying to fade the narrative. I just, yeah. I just find that I'm often in that scenario where I'm buying it and I know that I know the narrative and I just yep. think, well, there's another possibility here. There is another possibility. And I don't know if the narrative is right or not. And if you're thinking about, if we're having this conversation seven years from now and you're thinking about your two funds, like, are, have you launched more funds? Have you, is it just bigger AUM? Like what, what is, what does success look like to you if we're having this conversation in, in seven years? Outperform over the full period, um, survive the full period. Well, let me, let me, in, in order, survive that period of time, get to the very end of that would be great. That would be my first objective. Outperform would be my second objective. Um, my, in terms of AUM, I sort of think that, that it takes care of itself. I, I don't have, I'm a little bit subscale where I am. I've got, got about $40 million in each fund. Ideally, they'd probably be around a hundred million dollars. Um, 40 is a little bit too small, but a hundred's about right. So if I got to, above 100, it's sort of largely irrelevant to me what the AUM is other than just impacting the trading of the funds. So I, I don't have particularly grand hopes for the amount of money that I run. I would just like to generate really good performance. And I kind of feel like we're in a position now where valuations are very compressed. The businesses look pretty good to me. I think they're going to survive. I think that that's a pretty good prospect for outperformance. I think that if you look through various cycles, the style of value that I practice does do fairly well most of the time. It doesn't do very well in a 99-2000 or 2019-2020 type market, but most of the time it does. You get a little bit of outperformance for being concentrated in, in deep value stuff and in, in holding stuff that people don't want to own without having any um, you know, grand thesis or grand narrative for why those things should work. And I think that that's sort of been borne out. If you look at the the fund, uh, Zig was long short until uh, 2021. It got hurt pretty badly uh, through 2019-2020 when just my shorts hurt too much. My longs didn't work well enough. Since then, being long only, it has outperformed every single year and it's outperformed over the full set. I imagine that that continues to happen. And I think it's underperformed a little bit, but over the full since inception. But I think, I think we'll just mow that down over time, given enough time, it'll get there. And I certainly think if we go through some sort of crash and a rebound, value will do very, very well out of a rebound. And so I think that would accelerate the process. So I'm sort of hopeful that maybe we have something like that. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to say I'm hopeful for a crash because I know that they're they're awful things to go through. But, you know, as a value guy, speaking purely about the way that my performance would, my funds would look, a crash and a recovery would be really great for value. And I'm, I'm pretty confident at the end of that we'd be, we'd be outperforming. I would, I would, that would be probably my highest conviction bet. And so I think that over seven years, we probably have seen one or two crashes. 
hopefully we've survived and hopefully we've done pretty well. Still going at the end of that would be would be perfect. So Toby, this has been fun. We've talked about a lot of different stuff. We'll close with the podcast uh, with the question we always ask uh, our managers. What do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity set within your deep value strategies? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, like I said before, I think it's, I always think it's mean reversion. I think that if you look at the portfolios, you always look at them and you think, I know why these things are cheap and look at the financial statements and you might see that, you, you know, there's a little bit of softness in the earnings. I know why that there's a narrative that the trend is always going to be sort of down. And there, I think that there is mean reversion is this almost magical phenomenon. I think you can describe why it works in a sort of microeconomic competition type. But, you know, that's that's a narrative in and of itself. It's not necessarily the truth. And I don't know really what drives mean reversion. But I think that there's an enormous amount of mean reversion embedded in those stocks that mean that if you just wind the clock forward two or three years, they all look like they're much better businesses than they currently are. And so I think that that's sort of what – that's why I love Deep Value so much. It's that little bit of invisible magic in the mean reversion. And I think that I, I like holding stuff where it starts doing a little bit better than it was before I bought it because it makes me look smart where I'm not smart at all. I'm just trying to get lucky. You know, that's, that's sort of what I, I've got no insight. It's just I just trust that the mean reversion is going to work. So if I took a step back, it would basically be people to some degree have forgotten about mean reversion. I think right? that's that true. Used to be, it used to be a narrative that was like pretty well understood and like I don't know, whatever value investing value strategies have always had a mean reversion element. And right. the last 12 years, 13 years have, have basically wiped that away. I think that's true. I, I sort of, I think that that's the case. I, I'm sort of talking my own book, but I do really think that that's the case. I think that we, we, we relied on re mean reversion for a long time. We've gone through a period where it really has been a, um, a growth, compound growth type market. And I think that compound growth is very, very hard to find and we found a lot more than there really were over the last three or four years particularly you know i th i like i know i appreciate the the irony of saying that on the compound podcast i love compounders too i want to buy them i want to hold them and i want to own them i just i think they're very very hard to to pick and often they're when you find them there everybody else knows about them too so if you can find them before everybody else knows about them then you're going to get some very good performance sure sure uh, well, Toby, this has been fun, uh, and I've been on your podcast, and it's really fun to turn the mic and and and, and pepper you with questions. So, thanks for being on Compounders. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. My pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Great questions. Great to talk to a uh, old school value guy like you too. <laughs> Thank you. Toby manages a number of ETFs, including Zig and Deep. I do not own either of those ETFs. 